In this podcast, Colette Eaton-Harris, Senior Practice Advisor at Safe Lives, is in conversation with Dr Jess Roy from the University of Bristol, discussing children's social care in the time of COVID-19. Hi Jess, thank you so much for speaking with me today. One of your key research focuses has been on children living with parents who are misusing substances and the comorbidity of this and domestic abuse. What did we already know about this pre to COVID-19? Hi Colette. What we know broadly is that children who grow up in households where there is domestic violence and abuse or parental substance misuse are at greater risk of suffering physical and emotional harm. Now, both domestic violence and abuse and substance misuse separately can impact negatively on children's safety and well-being. And when both of these things are present, those risks are understandably increased. And the impact on children is not just in the short term and not just a risk of physical harm, although, of course, that is present, but can have long lasting impacts on children's emotional and mental well-being. What's also important to note is that um, domestic violence and abuse and parental substance misuse frequently co-occur, as you noted. A study I recently completed suggested that up to 50% of children who were living with parental substance misuse and known to children's social care were also experiencing domestic violence and abuse. And other studies have reported higher rates of comorbidity. Worryingly, but unsurprisingly, children who experience both these things are at increased risk of suffering abuse and neglect. And again, my own research um, into children, known to children's social care, experiencing both of these things, showed that these were children who had amongst the poorest um, outcomes in terms of child welfare. I think what is particularly challenging is that the co-presence of uh, domestic violence and abuse and parental substance misuse creates additional risks for children and also removes potential protective factors. So, for example, having a parent or carer who does not misuse alcohol or drugs is a protective factor for children living with parental substance misuse. However, if that non-using adult is also the perpetrator of domestic violence and abuse, children are unlikely perhaps to turn to that individual for security or safety or to feel safe and secure. There are also some similarities in how children experience and understand domestic violence and abuse and substance misuse, which are important to highlight And perhaps underlying much of what children say about domestic violence and abuse and parental substance misuse is fear. They are, of course, fearful for their own safety, but more often than not, children are more concerned about the safety of their parents and their siblings. Um, For example, they are scared that their parent will be badly injured or even killed by the other. They may be worried that their parent will overdose or cause harm to themselves through alcohol or drugs. And alongside this, children often feel a very deep sense of love and loyalty towards their parents. And this can make it very difficult for children and young people to seek help or to talk talk to professionals as they are concerned about being disloyal, getting their parents into trouble or creating greater risks in the households. And because of this, children and young people often put in place their own plans to keep themselves and their family safe. So what new risks or challenges do you think have been created by this new landscape? Um, Well, I think what I would start to say by saying is that I think discussions about the impact of kind of lockdown and COVID-19 have to be done with caution in that all of what we know is emerging and actually the landscape is changing daily. So the impact and challenges and risks will be shown, I think, in the coming months and years. Um, And what some people and uh, children may be experiencing right now isn't the same as what others are. Having said that, early research 
you know, it's very clear that the risk of harm is increasing. So, for example, the increased risks of domestic violence and abuse have been well documented and publicised uh, with significant increase in kind of calls to domestic violence helplines and an increase in domestic violence homicide. Um, perpetrators or abusers may use COVID-19 and lockdown to increase control and abuse, for example, kind of increased monitoring of daily activities and control over things like food and medicine. Lockdown also means that isolation, a kind of key part of what abusers do, can be done to a greater extent. And survivors don't have the opportunity to kind of have the interactions they may have been able to get into a day by you know, dropping the kids off at school or going shopping or perhaps going to work. And being call, able to kind of uh, phone call and text friends and family without the abuser around. Critically, the kind of physical and social and economic restrictions means that there are very few places that survivors can go for help. And it means that survivors are kind of literally locked in with their abuser and therefore likely to experience violence and abuse to a greater extent. The effects for children are, are evident. Being confined to the house for most of the time is likely to mean children are seeing and hearing violence and abuse and its aftermath. And children are very aware of what's happening in their family home. And even if violence and abuse is happening out of direct sight, it is likely they will be aware of it and be impacted by it. Survivors of domestic violence and abuse often talk about kind of walking on eggshells and children will also feel that sense of unease and threat in their day-to-day -day lives. And finally, what I say is increase in domestic violence abuse also may mean more children are directly abused. So a survey by Women's Aid found that a third of survivors reported that the abuser had shown an increase in abusive behaviour towards their children. There's been less discussed about parental substance misuse, but I think the risks are pertinent. So on the whole, it's likely that there has been a, a general increase in alcohol use. We know that alcohol sales rose significantly just prior to and post lockdown. Um, a survey by Alcohol Change found that a fifth of adults reported an increase in their drinking uh, during lockdown. And in the same survey, uh, one in seven people who had children said that alcohol had increased tensions in the household. It's important to note that this increase isn't across the board and actually some people are drinking less or stopping altogether and this may be because you know pubs are shut and the lockdown means that once people have kind of drunk the alcohol they have in their house they may not be able to get any more. The picture with job use is more complicated um, information and data is harder to come by for obvious reasons but um, information suggests that illicit drug dealing and use continues albeit in different forms and I think um, what's kind of important to note is that people who use drugs may be at increased risk of both being infected by COVID-19 and of developing serious illness because of it. I think um, kind of in relation to what we're focused on today, that the lockdown plus the coexistence of substance misuse and violence and abuse uh, presents particular risks to children and parents. So one example is that it's known that um, abusers or perpetrators may use drugs and alcohol as a means to kind of control and punish and for example, by you know, withholding alcohol or drugs during lockdown, abusers will be able to do this to a greater extent. And furthermore, substance misuse support services um, available uh, may not be available in their typical form. So over the phone or text rather than in personal groups. So finally, I would like to point to the kind of wider context of risk and challenge during this time, which is that Many children and families are living in poverty and the lockdown means that income may be halted, food and other support offered by schools is no longer there. Poverty increases stress levels in the house and we must be mindful of this wider context when working with children and families. You can see that there's just 
pressure points at lots of different places there. Uh, what would yeah. you say the impact is on children? Um, well, again, I, I sort of caveat with a caution I said earlier in that um, we know actually very little about how children are experiencing um, the lockdown. Um, interestingly, uh, the government uh, opened up um, questions from the public in their kind of daily briefings, but you have to be over 18 to ask a question. So I think there's quite a kind of clear sign there that the government isn't necessarily focused on the needs or, or what children are wanting to ask questions of. But in terms of domestic violence abuse or substance misuse, I think what I would say is that, as ever, children don't just sort of passively witness these things. They experience it, they make meaning of it, and they take actions to try and protect themselves, their siblings and their parents. And during lockdown, because of the increase in potential violence and abuse and substance misuse, children may be at increased risk of harm. But I think critically, some of the key protective strategies that they might normally use won't be available to them. So, uh, for example, children may try to make a kind of normally a safe space for themselves in their home. So going away to their bedroom or, or a different room in the house where they can't see or hear um, people using substances or violence and abuse. This really may no longer be feasible with everyone in the home together. Um, equally, places and spaces and time outside of the household are really important protective strategies. So this may be in school, but it may be going to the house of a friend or another family member, such as a grandparent. It may be actually time in the house when parents are out. And as all of our social worlds have closed down, so have these kind of protective opportunities. And I would particularly highlight that Grandparents and older adults in the family often provide safety for children in these circumstances. And if they are shielding due to age or health, this kind of safety net, if you like, will no longer be available. Um, while kind of government and lots of organisations have emphasised quite rightly that you can leave your house if you feel unsafe or in danger, I don't think the same message has really been directed at children in the same way. And an alone child or sibling group outside the house would likely raise the concern of members of the public or the police. So um, I think, you know, where there is a social worker, safety planning with children when it's safe and appropriate to do so is, is really important. Um, having said that, only a very small portion of the child population has a social worker. And I think that perhaps some of the children who are at most risk of harm are those who don't have a social worker, those who don't necessarily have um, a professional supporting them in their life. And they will have be experiencing these issues at home and with little options about where to turn. Potentially something useful could be for kind of general public information to be shared with children and young people, you know, reaffirming that they can leave the house if they feel unsafe and identifying who they could call, you know, which organisations or where they could go for safety. So thinking about those issues, do you see a role for social workers collaborating with substance misuse services or domestic abuse services? And what might that look like? Um, I think, you know, absolutely. Um, and I, what's the... Oh, I'm going to start all of that again. <laughs> um, absolutely. There are pockets of kind of excellent practice in terms of collaboration between agencies, but... Um, I think prior to prior to COVID-19, prior to lockdown, we have quite a siloed system in England in which communication and shared understanding of issues such as substance misuse and domestic violence abuse between different services, including children's social care, is not necessarily all it could be. Um, as ever, collaboration between professional agencies of central importance, particularly when we're thinking about the well-being and safety of children. 
Um, the current situation where children aren't necessarily being supported or seen by anyone outside of the house means it's even more vital. Now, what kind of that interagency work looks like on the ground, I think will be very different for kind of each person and each local area. Um, so in some cases, and with the consent of the, the parent and the family they are supporting, this may mean that different agencies work together and um, talking to each other about the best way to kind of uh, provide support and safety. You know, there may be simple strategies that can be put in place to increase um, support. Um, for example, if someone is picking up their methadone script, is this a possible time and a safe space for them to be able to talk over the phone to their domestic abuse support worker without being overheard, for example? Um, Sometimes, quite understandably, people don't want different professional agencies talking to each other about them. And I think there are other ways that agencies can collaborate um, and engage with one another. Um, for example, and I'm sure that many services already do this, but weekly check-ins between local services, obviously virtually, where information can be shared generally about what trends different um, agencies are seeing during lockdown. So, you know, increases in substance misuse, violence and abuse, you know, what problems are arising, what kinds of support they are finding works with the kind of population group they support. Um, furthermore, barracks are still running and they're finding kind of innovative ways to, to meet. And these are are and always have been a key form for bringing together professionals across different agencies. So now more than ever, I think these interagency discussions about children and families where there is violence and abuse are really important. Um, finally, I, I think I would encourage a um, sort of think child approach for specialist support workers who primarily work with adults and not children. And, and as I said, I know many people will already be doing this, but you know, where possible, asking about how the children are in the household, you know, what are they doing day to day? How are they managing the kids being off school, which is very stressful for, for many people not being able to go out? Um, there are professionals um, able to support children at this time, even if it's not, you know, your own organisation. So, for example, some domestic violence and abuse services have specialist children's workers who can support children. And furthermore, children's social care are still kind of working, taking referrals, going out to see children. Um, and those referrals should keep coming into social care where it's necessary. You're working on the Reprovide programme with Professor Jean Fader. Can you tell us a bit more about that programme? Yes, of course. So Reprovide is a research programme looking broadly at ways to improve healthcare responses to adults who perpetrate or experience um, domestic violence and abuse and also children who experience it. The programme has kind of two projects or two strands within it. One strand is testing to see whether a group intervention for men who use abusive behaviours is effective in reducing um, their abuse towards women. The other strand uh, called Iris Plus is the one that I work on. And this aims to improve um, general practice as so a doctors and nurses response to domestic violence and abuse by um, training um, healthcare professionals and providing a kind of direct referral pathway to a local specialist service for men, women and children. Um, IRIS Plus builds on the successful IRIS model, which I'm sure lots of people have heard of. And IRIS involves increasing the identification and referral of female victims of domestic violence and abuse. Um, within GP surgeries and IRIS has already been kind of proven to work and is currently um, in operation over many sites in England and Wales. IRIS Plus aimed to kind of extend the IRIS model by considering um, as well as women who experience abuse, men who experience uh, abuse and men, men and women who perpetrate abuse and children who experience violence and abuse in their household. Um, 
suppose at its simplest level, the RS plus intervention encourages GPs and nurses and other healthcare practitioners to ask patients um, about domestic violence and abuse if they present with certain symptoms that we know to be associated with um, violence and abuse. So things like depression and stress, gynecological problems in women. Um, children most often present with their parents to GPs, but they may present with symptoms such as kind of headaches, tummy aches, bedwetting, behaviour problems. Um, the additional focus on children within Iris Plus was really important. Um, sort of, sorry, I'll start that again. The additional focus on children uh, within Iris Plus was really important. Um, one in five children experienced domestic violence abuse at some point during their childhood. The vast majority of these children don't receive any support. They don't reach the threshold for children's social care intervention. And um, due to all sorts of reasons, but primarily around kind of funding cuts, there are very few community based support services. So healthcare professionals um, remain at the kind of front line of being able to see children and identify those children who may need further support. So the concern would be now that in the current situation, abuse, particularly domestic abuse, will be a lot less visible to health professionals, including GPs. Do you have any thoughts about what health services can do to try and mitigate that issue somewhat? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really critical concern at the moment. And thank you for asking. We know that attendance at GP surgeries has gone right down um, and people calling their GPs with health problems has gone right down. So a key place where children and indeed adults needs will be kind of identified and met is no longer there. It also means that when lockdown restrictions are eased, we may see an influx of people going to their GP will need support. And there's a risk that those services become overwhelmed and it kind of can't provide the support that's needed. Um, I think uh, there's a couple of things that might that can be useful in terms of how, what health services can do. Uh, recently, there's been a notable push in encouraging people with non-COVID related illnesses to still get in touch with their GP as they normally would. Um, and I would reiterate that GPs and nurses are still doing consultations and seeing patients, albeit kind of over the phone or virtually. And I would encourage you know, those health professionals to ask patients about domestic violence and abuse where appropriate, if it's safe to do so, and also about how the children are in the household. These consultations may be a really key way where potential issues relating to violence and abuse and substance issues can be identified and, where appropriate, referred on to other agencies such as children's social care, uh, but also domestic violence and abuse services, for example. Um, again, and I know many GP surgeries are already doing this, but I think um, communications with their wider patient population should include information about where people can go for support around domestic violence or abuse or what to do if they are concerned about a child they might know about. So many GP surgeries have Facebook pages and websites, and these are kind of key places where information can be disseminated to a large group of people. Thanks, Jess. Thinking back to your points earlier about children and the impact on children, we know that talking to children can be an area that practitioners struggle with. It's a real skill. And of course, a lot of what practitioners usually do to put children at their ease, creating safe spaces, um, uh, you know, creating easier ways to talk, communicate, etc. A lot of that's now a lot more difficult because mm. of the lockdown. Do you have any thoughts about what practitioners could do to keep seeking the voice of the child? Yeah, I mean, social workers, as you say, do have key skills in communication and in building relationships in difficult situations and contexts. The pandemic and the lockdown presents a new challenge, 
but um, I think a challenge that social workers are very well equipped to meet. From what professionals are saying, social work professionals are saying, there is clearly really excellent creative practice going on at the moment to keep talking to and engaging with children. And this includes things like um, texting, video calls, video messages and phone calls. Um, it may also include visiting children and families and spending one-on-one -on -one time with children, you know, in the garden or outside whilst being socially distanced. Um, I think it's important to kind of emphasize that social workers in some cases are still going into people's houses um, where it is safe to do so. But there are obviously practical challenges with some of these means of communication. Some children don't have a private space like a bedroom to go into, let alone a garden. As well as how social workers can keep talking to children, the content of what is talked about is also important to highlight. Social workers will know very well kind of the key things that are going on for the child in their life, whether that be domestic violence and abuse or parental substance misuse or something else. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact that children um, in all situations may also be very scared of what's going on at the moment, very scared of COVID-19 and very unsettled by the changes to day-to-day -day life. And actually quite a lot of the work social workers may be doing at the moment will be around talking to children about, um, about what's happening, about the national emergency. I would say that um, some of these kind of different and creative ways of engaging children may be an unintended benefit of lockdown. Some children will prefer to communicate over text and find there's much less uh, pressure than talking face to face to a, a, a professional or to an adult. One of the positives about texting is that it can be done asynchronously. So it doesn't demand you know, half an hour of a child's time, but rather they can choose when and how to respond. As much as we're hearing about the challenges of COVID-19, it's also been really inspiring to hear some of the creative practices that social workers and other professionals are adopting. Um, I understand, Jess, that there's been some changes to statutory children's safeguarding work brought in by the adoption and children coronavirus regulations. Can you describe what the practice implications of these changes might be? Um, yeah, so these changes have only very recently been announced and were quickly passed through Parliament with little scrutiny. The changes introduced mean that some of the local authorities' statutory duties to children who are in the care of the local authority, so for example children who are in foster care, have been removed. So this includes um, reviews every six months, no longer being mandatory for certain children in care. Other duties have also been removed or made more flexible, including those relating to adoption and foster care. Um, for example, the, some of the changes around fostering is aimed to speed up the process of placing children with foster carers. I would say broadly that the implications of practice are unknown. These changes were introduced last week and they are intended to expire in September. Um, so it may be that after September, they won't be extended and nothing further will happen. However, I think there is a, a broader concern in the kind of social work community and the children's rights community is that these changes were proposed a few years ago and following significant ejection um, and a judicial review, they were then dropped. And it's not completely clear why they have reappeared at this moment in time. I suppose a generous view is that these changes were made to release pressures on local authorities from kind of having to do um, certain mandatory visits which might, which might be very difficult due to COVID-19. However, these are quite significant changes to statutory duties which will impact on um, children who are in care, you know, children who have potentially experienced significant trauma and difficulties. From what I understand, there was minimal consultation with key social work organisations. So, for example, 
The Children's Commission Office for England said they were informed of the changes but not consulted. Um, critically, it would appear that children, young people, parents and foster carers were not consulted about the changes. Um, and my view would be that you know, if the government wants to support social workers and the children and families they work with during the pandemic, that's great. But then the first needs to be some consultation about what would actually be useful during this period of time. And if you were in frontline practice now, Jess, what do you think would be the what do you think you would be most concerned about? What, what would be occupying your thoughts and what might you be putting on in terms of resources and approaches to help you? This is a really important question and one that feels quite um, quite relevant to me at the moment. So at the beginning of the pandemic and just before lockdown happened, I thought I had quite a lot of thoughts about how I would be feeling if I was still in practice doing direct work with children and families. And this became slightly more of a reality because I signed up to be in the pool of kind of out of practice social workers who were willing to return to work during the pandemic. Um, like the NHS, Social Work England has also created a temporary register and pool of social workers willing to return to frontline practice if needs be. Um, in terms of what I would be kind of pulling on, I think like when I was in practice, a key um, support to me would would be my you know my colleagues, my team, my supervisor and manager, being able to discuss what is happening, having reflective supervision about children and families I was working with, sharing ways of working with children and families between colleagues would all be absolutely vital. I also think there are many different resources out there. So, for example, the British Association of Social Workers has compiled lots of really useful and supportive information relating to social work during the pandemic. And in terms of concerns, there has been much discussion about PPE in hospitals and care homes, rightly. And children and family social workers also need equipment to ensure their safety and the safety of those that they work with. Um, the findings of a British Association of Social Workers survey, um, which is ongoing, highlights that social workers are worried about the lack of PPE and items like hand sanitizers. Now, there are some local authorities that are providing this equipment, which is brilliant, but there will be others that aren't, cannot afford to and cannot access this. So I think this would be an area of concern for me and something I would want the government to respond to urgently. In the mainstream media, on social media and in the Downing Street briefings, there's been a lot of acknowledgement of the challenges that some key workers are facing. But I noticed that social workers haven't been talked about a great deal. Do you feel that their role as key workers is being properly recognised? <laughs> I mean, I am probably biased here, but no, I don't think social workers are properly recognised. Not now and not really ever. Social workers do a hugely difficult, and very skilled job. Like other essential and key workers, social workers are risking themselves and their health by continuing to work in the community, by visiting children and families and by working to ensure the safety and well-being of children and their families. And I would extend you know, the absolute same to adult social workers and care workers as well. Unlike other kind of key workers, social workers tend not to get public congratulations or accolades. And I think there remains a deep mistrust of and, and fear about what social workers do. But at its core, I believe that social work is about social justice, supporting children and adults to live happily, safely and free from fear and harm in their communities and families. As such, social workers, in my view, are equally deserving of praise and there needs to be public recognition of their expertise, hard work and input into society at this very challenging time. Couldn't agree more, Jess. Thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. Just lots of food for thought there and lots of really practical ideas of what social workers can be doing at this time. So thank you. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to talk to you.